Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, this is our Psalm of the Month. And it's the practice here at the Dallas RPC to consider a psalm each month. We go sequentially through the psalm book. As the Apostle has uh, told us, we are to sing with the understanding. We are to sing with understanding the, the words that we sing out of God's Holy Word. And today we come to Psalm 106, which is one of the longest psalms in the Scriptures. We cannot cover every jot and tittle, but we will investigate its main theme. Well, with that, please give your attention to the reading of God's Holy Word, Psalm 106. These are the very words of the living God. Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word, but murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague broke in upon them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them, 
Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went to whoring with their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen, and they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection unto their hand, under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented or relented according to the multitude of his mercies. And he made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Truly, as we read this text, which proclaims our great unfaithfulness, but also the great faithfulness of God, we come before you now in wonder that God is so kind. And so we pray, Father, that as the word is preached, that you would enable your minister to preach the word, preach the word faithfully in the power of the Spirit, giving the sense of the text and also the hope of the gospel. Father, only your spirit can do this in the man. We also pray that your spirit would open hearts here to the wonderful good news of the gospel and of a faithful God, even though we, your people, are unfaithful. God is faithful, and how we are to bless you for that. And so, Father, on a day in which the preacher's voice is weak and is not well, we pray that in the preaching of the word, you would make it clear that in the weakness of the vessel, it is not by might or a power, but by your Spirit, O God, that we triumph. And so, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if our faithfulness was required for salvation, we would be lost. If the church's faithfulness was required For her to endure, she would be lost as well. And every scheme, every theology, every doctrine that requires our faithfulness for salvation is not only against the word that says salvation is of the Lord, but it will produce despair over failure or it will produce delusion over self-righteousness. For we are not a very faithful people, people of God. We are not a very faithful church as the church either. No, our hope rests in one place, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the objective instrument that God has given us that ratifies and promises his faithfulness to his chosen people, to his elect. And that instrument is the covenant of grace. And that is the theme of this great psalm. And that theme is that our hope 
is in the Lord's faithfulness to His covenant for our sake. Our hope is not in ourselves, but in the faithfulness of God to remember His covenant for them, for us, for our sake. And we'll consider the theme of this psalm under three heads. First is His covenant faithfulness prized. Second is covenant faithfulness proven. And third is covenant faithfulness to be praised. First, His covenant faithfulness prized. Let's begin with some context again. As with Psalm 105, this psalm was penned by King David. What was the occasion? It was the same. The Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant being returned in First Chronicles chapter 16. In that chapter, as we heard last month, in First Chronicles 16, we found the opening praise of Psalm 105. But at the conclusion of that praise in that chapter is the ending of this psalm, Psalm 106. And as you heard last time, these two psalms are a conjoined pair. Both sing one great melody, God's steadfast covenant, mercy, and faithfulness. His faithful pledge, we heard it last time in the covenant of grace. What is the essence? What is the substance of the covenant of grace? It's simple, boys and girls. Do you remember it? In Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the glory of that covenant is this. Whatever comes, whatever stands in the way of that promise coming to pass, God himself will deal with, for he has sworn to do it. So in Psalm 105, we heard last month that it sings of God's faithfulness to rise up for us when his enemies rage. It cheered us to hear that whether it is Pharaoh or Philistine or the nations today, we are always preserved because the Lord swore to us a covenant to preserve us ratified in blood. Here in Psalm 106 is God's covenant faithfulness to save us from a greater enemy than Pharaoh. The enemy far worse than the devilish Pharaoh himself. What's that enemy? Ourselves. Ourselves. Far worse enemy. And we rejoice here in this covenant that when his covenant people are faithless, when his covenant people fall into their sin, even though he chastens us and he afflicts us for our sin, he does it to draw us back to himself and he will save us again. God is faithful. And that is the sweet theme of both psalms. God is faithful. The sweetness of the psalms, the sweetness of the Bible is really never this. The sweetness of the Bible is not we are faithful. That would be a bitter pill to swallow as we would all be undone. Instead, the sweetness of the Bible and the sweetness of the gospel is God is merciful. God is faithful to unfaithful men, women, and children. And for that then, verse 1 says, Praise ye the Lord, or hallelujah. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Praise and thanks, we are reminded why. God is good. And his goodness is shown where? That his mercy endureth forever. You might know this. The word mercy here in the Hebrew is chesed. It's a word without really an English equivalent. And so you'll notice it's translated various ways throughout the scriptures. Sometimes loving kindness. Sometimes steadfast love. Sometimes covenant mercies. It expresses 
the Lord's sure commitment of love expressed in a covenant uh, to be merciful to us so that he is ever merciful and ever gracious to his people. And, he, you know, we, we read over these things so quickly, don't we? You ever ponder, do you read slowly enough where you would ponder not only does his mercy endure, but what is the duration of his mercy? What is the duration? Will it expire like my car's warranty? No, praise the Lord, it is everlasting. It is everlasting. Without everlasting mercy, without mercy unending, I would be lost and you would be too, believer. Because all of us, the most godly man or woman, the godliest minister on the earth, the best churches under heaven, all sin, all sin. We all provoke God with our unfaithfulness. There are times we backslide. And every day we sin in thought, word, and deed. And we say with the psalmist elsewhere, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Understanding that, that we have a God of mercy, in verses 43 through 45 is the psalm's theme. And this is really where we will orient all of our, our, our preaching this morning. Listen to the glory of it. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Here's this beautiful word. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented or relented according to the multitude of his mercies. Now there's a verse you could sit and ponder for eternity. Really, you could. There's a wretched cycle of sin that we fall into, isn't there? You see it all throughout the Bible. You've seen it in your own life, I'm sure. He delivers us. We provoke him. He chastens us with affliction. That's that wretched cycle, right? He, he saves us. We provoke him. He chastens us. And then his spirit causes us to cry out to him in affliction, right? And then what does he do? He's in his rights, doesn't he? As in Psalm 2, to laugh at us, to mock our calamity. We deserve that. But what does he do? We thank him and praise him that he is good to us and steadfast in love. Nevertheless, verse 44 says, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. Elsewhere, you think of Jeremiah when Jerusalem falls, another cycle of affliction. In Lamentations 3, 32-33, though he caused grief, yet will he have compassion according to what? The multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Do you understand, child of God, why he afflicts us? Why he afflicts us when we sin? Why does he cause grief in our souls? It's so that the child of God would cry out to him and return to him so that he would show what? Compassion. Compassion. Could you imagine if he let us stay in our sin, if he did not afflict us and he doesn't afflict us willingly, if he let us stay in our sin, we would be lost in it, wouldn't we? But he afflicts us to chasten us, as Hebrews 12 says, that we would return as the prodigal son did in Luke 15, that we would return to the Father of mercies. And what is the objective instrument that we can look at to know these things are true? It is his covenant. Verse 45, And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. 
These words are so precious, believer. You think about this, right? He remembered for, and what grace is in this verse? He remembered for who? He remembered for them. He remembered for them his covenant. The covenant is not crafted for his benefit. He is God over all, blessed forever. The covenant was given for our benefit. We cry out, he remembers his covenant, he saves us, and our faith must believe that. Before we move on, what must you do? What must I do when you fall into the sin that so easily besets you? And maybe the Lord's chastening hand comes upon you and you suffer grief, suffer trials, sorrows in soul and body. What happens? What are you to do when he afflicts you and you feel like you're in the pit of despair? You're not to remain there. The covenant calls for this response from you. Think of verse 44. He regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. When he heard their cry. And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. Oh, friends. There, as I said, we could, we probably could just be preaching on this one verse. We cry out to him for mercy. Forgive me, O oh Lord. And sometimes, right, we, we are so embarrassed and ashamed and we should be. Right? We should be. But we think that we have run out the tap, so to speak. We have run out the tap of his mercies. But how many mercies are there here? My sins are a multitude, but I bless the Lord that his mercies are a multitude as well. That no man can number. A multitude. So in despair, take up the psalm. Consider its promise in the 44th verse and cry to God. But this psalm is also not just for individuals. In fact, its original purpose was corporate, wasn't it? We have sinned, David says, as a people, as the church. We have sinned against you, O God, like our fathers. I'll consider that in just a moment. But today, so often the church is being brought low for iniquities. And what every church court must do, every church court must do when we see that we are being brought low, whether it is a session or a presbytery or a synod, we must cry out to God, Remember your covenant, O God, and restore us according to the multitude of thy mercies, and we repent as a people. Well, the psalmist finds his hope in the covenant, and he saw that this promise is true, right? Not only is this promise given, but the promise is proven throughout the scriptures. And that forms the bulk of the psalm in our second head, his covenant faithfulness proven. And as I've said, the bulk of the psalm proves this theme as David recalls how God delivered his fathers from so many provocations. And you think about when, when he, he pens this, you know, it ends there. But as the scriptures continue on from that time, you see more provocations and more provocations, all proving the truth of the word, though. Where we begin, though, is where David begins. He did not see his people as different from their fathers. And we must not either. He confessed in verse 6, we have sinned with who? Our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. When we sing this psalm, we sing the same. David's fathers, they are our fathers as well. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he called David's fathers our fathers. 1 Corinthians 10.1 Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers, the same language, Our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. We heard last time in Psalm 105, if we are Christ's, we are Abraham's seed and heirs, Galatians 3.29. 
And so what do we say? We can say, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. The problem is, we are too proud to sing it. Isn't that the problem? But you think of this, King David wasn't too proud. Paul was not too proud to see that we sin as our fathers did. When we are brought low, this is the thing we must do. We must mortify pride and we must sing as well that we have done wickedly. And what follows in verses 7 through 42 is a recitation of the gross sins of our fathers. Even as you have heard it, some will turn your stomach. Some will show great unbelief. But what we have to realize is, and and this is the danger, right, boys and girls, when you read your Old Testament, the danger is you look at a man like Jonah and you say, well, how could he ever do that? You think of David, how could he have done that? No, the the problem is you don't read your Old Testament that way. You say, we are like them. And so when we come to look at this text, we are not saying that we are better than these people. How could these people have done such wicked things? No, we are saying, and all you have to do is look at church history, even our history, and you can see, personally, we are no better than these people, but, but for the grace of God, so do we go this way. Now, Paul reminds you as well. You might want to, this Lord's Day, read 1 Corinthians 10 along with this. Paul reminds us of our fathers and how to use them in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 12. Listen, now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come, Wherefore what? Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You, you think that you are beyond even murdering your children? You're not. You're not. We must take heed lest you fall in pride. So you're going to see here a cycle. A cycle of sin, affliction, and deliverance. Ultimately what it shows is that there is a people of God today not because we are faithful, but because He is. You you see, in every case, they have forfeited their rights to be the people of God. And yet He is faithful, and He remembers His covenant. And so that today there is a church on the earth. There are eight eras of the people's sin given in the psalm. Let's consider them in turn. First, verses 7-12, through we find the great sin of unbelief in the Exodus. Verse 7 says, Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies. There's that language again. But provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. They saw the ten plagues, didn't they, in Egypt. A multitude of mercy. Signifying God's covenant mercies, right? When when God sends Moses, he remembers his people. He remembers his covenant. And he comes to be merciful to them. But what do they do? Being liberated from Egypt and from their bondage, their slavery of seven days a week, slaves, when they come to the Red Sea, they forgot. And they provoked the Lord, Exodus 14, 11 through 12. And they said unto Moses, listen to this. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They would rather be in bondage than to serve and follow Jehovah. Are you and I much different, child of God? How often might you feel 
that it would be better to be back in the world with my sin. Sometimes, right, in your unbelief, as you take up your cross to follow Jesus, knowing you have to die to self, he's calling you to that. You say, why hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness and suffer so? Suffer for righteousness. Even though what has he promised to you? Even as he gives you that command, he has promised, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. And he says, for a little while yet, you will have to journey as a pilgrim and bear your cross. But still, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You forget his wondrous cross and his salvation. And yes, we have sinned with our fathers in that too. For such vile thoughts and words, you think about this, you meditate on that. Go back to Exodus 14. When you think of the multitude of his mercies, these are vile thoughts and words, friends. He could have destroyed us there. But in verse 8, what do we read? Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. For his name's sake, he saved them. For his glory, for his covenant oath, He cannot deny himself. He made a promise. He made good on it. He arose to save them despite themselves. You know, in that moment, did they really prove themselves any different from the Egyptians? No. He saves one. He drowns the other because he made a covenant to save his people. And we who deserve hell and damnation are no different than the the pagans. And yet he saves us by his mighty arm. And at the cross... Right, You find God's mighty power, His mighty arm, in a more incredible display than at the Red Sea. And you think about this as well. When He goes to the cross, when Jesus goes to the cross, where are His disciples? They run away. They deny Him as He goes to His cross. This is a far greater sin than speaking against Moses at the Red Sea. Yet what will we hear? Nevertheless, He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make His mighty power to be known. This, Jesus Christ, Son of God, God in the flesh, stretched out His mighty arm on the cross to take the blows we deserve for our sin, and so God will get the glory. And this is, of course, where the covenant apex is, not at the Red Sea, but at Calvary, where we find the covenant come to full term. Well, at the cross and at the Red Sea, He remembered His covenant He relented, and God's people were not ended. Well, after they were delivered, verse 12 says, Then believed they his words, they sang his praise. So you see this, they they believed his words after they were delivered, and they sang his praise. But did our father's faith and praise last? Our second great sin is in verses 13 to 15, our sin of ingratitude. In the wilderness, we tired of manna and demanded meat. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. You hear these words. They soon forgot his works. Soon. That's a besetting sin for us. That's a besetting sin for us. Quickly, we forget what he has done for us. And then what's the fruit of it? As here... Ingratitude and discontent. Beloved, 
do not let the songs of praise end in discontent and grumbling. Remember, to have Christ and his atoning work is enough. That's all you need. So that the Bible says, having food and clothing, let us be therewith content. 1 Timothy 6.8 Also, Hebrews 13.5 Be content with such things as ye have. Why? You remember. It's always good to remember the reason. What is the reason, child of God? For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. What is that but proving that Jesus is enough? With Jesus, you have everything. To have Christ is everything. How soon we forget, how soon we grumble with our lot. Discontentment is a great evil to the believer. And how great an evil it is because he has given you, his only begotten son, as great treasure. How did God judge our fathers in this text? It's very unexpected, and you must fear this too. He gave them what they lusted after. That was the judgment. He gave them the quail and loads of it so that they would hate it. Numbers 11.20 reminds us, but even a whole month until it come out of your nostrils and it be loathsome unto you because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you. Can you tie that back to Hebrews 13.5 where he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And you see here, you despise the Lord which is among you and you seek after the manna, uh, after the quail because the manna that I provided is not good enough. And so God gives them their quail, but he also caused them to despise what they lusted after because they despise the Lord which is among you. So in your discontent, believer, what you must marvel at is that you have been given God in the flesh, Emmanuel, Jesus. Discontentment to the believer despises that great truth. And I'll never forget it. I pray I won't. The Spurgeon's great illustration, right? When he talks about that poor Christian woman in her cottage, when she takes up her crust and her, her cup of water and exclaimed, what, all this in Christ too? That is why discontent is so evil for the Christian who has Christ. And God will make you loathe too much of anything else. But the one thing you will never loathe is too much of Christ. That is the one thing you will never loathe. And so verse 15 says, He gave their request and sent leanness into their soul. This is perhaps one of the most striking things I have seen in discontentment. Is God giving us, actually, as, as, a, as a chastening. He says, you don't want me? Fine. Here, have this. Do you remember in the old days, right? Um, this is before this generation. But sometimes when a, a parent would catch one of their children smoking, they would say, oh, you want cigarettes? Here, smoke the whole carton. Right? That's exactly what the Lord sometimes does. He gives you all that you wanted, and you will find that you are sick of it to chasten you. So once again, he remembered for them his covenant. He relented, and God's people were not ended. Third, in verses 16 through 18, is our father's great sin of envy and rebellion. Verse 16, they envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, uh, here, you remember, they wanted to take over the Lord's appointed government, which meant they weren't really rebelling against Moses and Aaron, but against the Lord himself. Numbers 16, verse 13, is worth hearing because their perverseness goes so far. They said to Moses, right, 
Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Now, there are many things that's perverse there. But did you listen to what they said? Why did you bring us out of a land overflowing with milk and honey? This is what they thought of Egypt. But the promised land is the land overflowing with milk and honey. And that's how perverse we are, friends. We call the land of bondage the land that flows with milk and honey. We call our sin that pleasant and good land. We call the world the pleasant and good land, but not heaven, not Canaan. We're prone to think of this world as the promised land instead of heaven. And when even a man or Jesus Christ leads us in that direction, we say, no, 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 I don't want to go there. And I will rebel against it. And I will want to go back to the world instead of meditating what Jesus Christ has said, that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. We think that this fallen world is the place of fullest joy. And we do not live heavenly lives, but carnal lives. You must march to the promised land of heaven through the wilderness of this this world, following Christ. How does he tell you to march through this world? I've already mentioned it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Instead, we chafe at him. And, and you know, and this might be you right now, as you're thinking on several duties the Lord has wanted you to, to follow after him in. And we say, when we say, no, Lord, we say, we will not have this man reign over us as they rebelled against Moses. Oh, child of God. Cry out to the Lord and plead the Lord's mercies if this is you. Repent and he will remember for you his covenant and and repent according to the multitude of his mercies. Even rebellion against Jesus Christ can be forgiven in him. But you remember the earth swallowed up the rebels. God's fire consumed them. Why was that? It was to keep all the people from rebelling and all the people from being lost. Because if they had rejected Moses and Aaron, they would be damned. In judgment, he remembered for them his covenant. He relented and God's people were not ended. And sometimes judgment comes, right? Judgment begins where? In the house of God. Judgment comes to preserve his people. Fourth, in verses 19 through 23, is our father's great sin of idolatry. Verse 20 says, Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. You remember Aaron made that golden calf and he claimed, let us have a feast to the Lord. Let us worship Jehovah through this golden calf. But this text so plainly shows us the folly of idolatry. It sets aside our glory, the Lord, with folly. Right? They change their glory. What's their glory? It is the Lord is our glory. The Lord is our glory. And they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox. You think of how disparaging and how foolish this is of an ox that eats grass. They changed the glory of I am that I am, the great Jehovah, into that. Jeremiah 2.11 says, how pernicious this is. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In idolatry. We exchange our glory for vanity. We exchange our glory of the incorruptible God for corruptible things. 
In Romans 1.23, Paul cites this psalm out of the Greek translation and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. No image, no carving, nothing can capture the glory of the glorious God. Nor, as Aaron tried, can we worship the true God through images or representations. Now, that might not be your problem today. Maybe not here in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, but you still are prone to replace the glory of God with idols. Maybe a man or a woman is your glory. Maybe your glory is your career. Maybe it's the old bank account. What a sin it all is if Christ is not your glory, especially when you consider what he has done. Verse 21, listen to this. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. That's what you do when you replace the glory of God. You forget God your Savior. And what a sin chasing idols is. Can the golden calf, right, you think of this, could that have ever saved us out of Egypt? No. What can save us from sin's curse? What can give us eternal life? Only Jesus. And when we chase our idols, we forget Jesus. The cure to our idolatry is always this, to remember what great things the Lord has done for us. What has Madison Avenue done for you? What can it do for you? You know, next year it's going to cause you to want the next iPhone, isn't it? The phone that you wanted this year is going to be considered useless. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, has done great things for us. And when we are prone to replace him with material things, that is foolishness. Even so, in their idolatries, our fathers were given a mediator. Verse 23, therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Moses, the one they rebelled against, Moses is sent to stand in the breach for them. Moses, that type of Christ, Jesus Christ standing in the breach for me, the sinner. That's what this verse portends. The breach I have made with God in my sin. Jesus Christ stands in the gap for me on the basis of the covenant. And though Moses dies, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't it a wonderful thing, child of God, that every breach between us and God is breached by Jesus Christ. Every breach, multitude of mercies. And so he remembered for them his covenant, he relented, and God's people were not ended. Fifth, in verses 24 through 27, is the great sin of turning back and refusing to enter Canaan. Verse 24, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word. You remember this, boys and girls, of the 12 spies? Only two, only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed God's word, that they would have Canaan and the land of promise. And what happened when Joshua and Caleb said, we must believe God? What did the people, what did our fathers, let's use that expression, our fathers, because they're like us. We have sinned with our fathers. What did our fathers want to do to Caleb and Joshua? Stone them. Stone them. Our fathers also thought evil of the Lord's designs and said in Numbers 14.3, Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Here it is again. Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? Same thing. Let's return back to the world. We are our father's children. Rather than fight the good fight of faith, we fear 
rather than take the gospel to every creature, rather than believe the promise of God, that the gospel is the power of God, that Christ's weapons of spiritual warfare are mighty, that the nations belong to him and all power has been entrusted to him. And him saying, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We shrink back. We're afraid of the highways and hedges, afraid of the jeers and taunts of men. And as the church has been unfaithful to that great commission, we see that it is often afflicted. Of the spies, the church has more in common with the ten than the two. And instead of their affections being for heaven, the land of promise, our affections are like our fathers on this world. And we are afraid, aren't we? We're afraid that if our family is consecrated to Christ and his ways, we'll consider that this afternoon in our new series on the family. We're afraid if our family is consecrated to Christ and his ways, he will cause our children to die. They will not advance in this world, we fear. Instead of saying with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, that generation fell in the wilderness They feared what? That their children would perish, that God would kill their children. But God caused their children to carry on, even as the adults were wiped out. Why did the children endure? He remembered for them his covenant. He relented, and God's people would never be ended. Sixth, in verses 28 through 31, we find spiritual harlotry with Baal Peor. Verse 28 They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. That will be in Numbers 25, where our fathers committed spiritual whoredom, whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Their fleshly lusts caused them to commune with the Moabite false god Baal Peor. And what you have to see here is there's this, this, um, this reflection of the heart. The outward harlotry with the Moabitesses showed inward heart idolatry. That's what that is. And so, boys and girls, if you seek to be unequally yoked and pursue an unbelieving spouse, what you're really doing is you're going a whoring against your God. That's what that is. It is heart whoredom. It is idolatry of the heart. You've replaced your God as with that golden calf, with this person. And being unequally yoked almost inevitably, in my experience, leads to apostasy. Why? Because the one who is unequally yoked never really believed the word of God that says, do not be unequally yoked. And if they won't believe such a plain word as that, how are they going to believe anything else? And they're in danger of missing the marriage which matters, the wedding of the Lamb. Here again, the Lord sent a plague to chasten them, and the plague could have ended them. But instead, what did he do? He raised up faithful Phineas, And Phineas judges the people with zeal and purged the evildoers among them. And God stayed his judgment. You see that again, right? He sends affliction. He sends judgment. Why? Because he remembered for them his covenant and he relents and God's people are not ended. Today, ministers and elders have the power of the keys and not the sword. To exercise church discipline when church members sin grievously. Otherwise, God's displeasure comes on a body. 1 Corinthians 5.13 warns, Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Phineas was commended and so too our elders who uphold Christ's law. 7th, verses 32 to 33. 
It was Moses' great sin that kept him from Canaan. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. In Numbers 20, verse 8, Moses had this instruction. Speak to the rock, and it will bring forth water. But Moses was so frustrated with our fathers. He had endured so much strife with them day in, day out for years. And he spoke to our fathers in anger, and he smoked the rock twice in anger. Numbers 20, 10 through 12. Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. He disobeyed. And there's no excuse for it, even though the people provoked him. He spake unadvisedly with his lips. His sinful passions took over. What a temptation there is for the ordained man frustrated with God's people. Taking matters into his own hands, not following Christ's word, but his own. Elders, for us to fall prey to this kind of sin is grievous. It's to be like Moses in his sin. And we become rebels against God. But we praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that unlike Moses, Jesus Christ, and our hope isn't in the church elders, it's in Jesus Christ, who always sanctified the Lord. Even at the cross, did he murmur against his people. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He did the will of the Lord without murmuring, though it cost his life. What did he say of the rebels? Forgive them, forgive them. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us the rock Moses smashed with flowed with water was Christ as well. There's so much of Christ here, I wish I could open up, but our time is short. So we thank the Lord that it's not Moses who is our mediator, but Christ. But even in Moses' great sin, God remembered for them his covenant. He relented, and God's people did not end. Eighth, verses 34 through 39, is the sin of syncretism and how evil it is. Our fathers did not cleanse the promised land. Verse 34, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. You remember this, they didn't wipe out Canaan. They allowed pagan nations to dwell in Canaan with them. Though God said, clean them out. What was the fruit of it? God meant that for their good. Sometimes, right, we believe we're more compassionate than God, right? This is a great besetting sin. God says one thing, we say, no, that would be, that would be too hard, but that is to be more compassionate than God. And we don't see God as far more compassionate than us because this causes the people to kill their own children and put them in the fire of Molech. Terrifying. Verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. Even the kings of Judah like Manasseh did it. So in verses 40 to 42, the Lord's wrath was kindled and he sent their enemies to conquer them. That pattern is all throughout the scripture from Judges onward. I don't have time to go into it. The Babylonian captivity may be being the greatest and most sorrowful example of it. It carries on today. So I already said, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And we will face many afflictions that are meant to grab our attention, causing us to put away our syncretism and to turn to the Lord. 
When we sense declension in our midst, we are to purify ourselves and search the word of God. We're not immune to it in the RP Church or at Dallas RPCNA. Let's put away every unbiblical practice for the glory of God and the honor of Christ, lest he continues to bring us lower and lower. Again, we praise the Lord. Even in this, even in their child sacrifices and abomination, he is faithful. We are unfaithful. Many times, verse 43 says, did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Again, remembering his covenant. You have seen the cycle in the psalm, friends. Our sin, God's chastening, our crying, and God's mercy. He remembers for us his covenant in the face of our great evil, and we, the people of God, endure. Praise God. This is our hope. This is our sole hope, this precious word, this precious truth. Every theology that says it is my faithfulness that keeps me in the covenant is rubbish. This psalm preaches it is Christ's faithfulness to remember the covenant. And as sinners who fall and fail constantly, we need this psalm constantly as well. This psalm also shows us this this dichotomy, right? This contrast, this evil contrast. We forget him. And he remembers us, right? Verse 7, they remembered not the multitude of thy mercies. Verse 13, they soon forgot his works. Verse 21, they forgot God their Savior. Verse 13, the most striking after verse 12, we heard it. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. We sin like our fathers. That's how we are. That's how we are. Let's resolve not to be that way by God's grace. Let's remember why we celebrated even the sacrament last Lord's Day. Do This do in remembrance of me. We were f- quick to forget. We must resolve to remember the multitude of his mercies and remember his works and remember God our Savior, Jesus Christ. We forget him, but praise God, he remembers us. We dishonor him so greatly, yet he is faithful to us. Has the Lord afflicted you for your sin today? And is the devil in your flesh trying to keep you from his mercy? Look on the promise of this word. Look on it. He will remember you for his covenant. He will regard your affliction if you cry. He has a multitude of mercies. Because Jesus Christ paid for a multitude of your sins on the cross to give you a multitude of mercies in his precious blood. How much? I'm going to come back to this again because we need to hear it. How much mercy does the Lord have? A multitude He does not give you a quota, and I praise God for this. You get 10,000 mercies, and then it's over. I would be exhausted in in a month, less than that. He doesn't give a quota. He says, I have a multitude that no man can, can number. So he does not have you guess, can I go to the well of mercy one more time? He says, go often. He even says to you, you are to forgive your brother who repents seven times in a day. Seventy times. Do you think he is he's more miserly than that? No. Go to Jesus. And if you are an unbeliever who has never heard of the grace of God, receive this merciful Jesus and repent of your sin. He will forgive a multitude of your sins, whatever you have done. That's our hope. Have you seen the evil list here of God's people? They are not saved by their goodness. They are saved in spite of their evil because they believed in the Lord. Turn to the multitudes of mercies in the Savior and be saved. Lastly, we consider, and we'll try to be a bit more brief here, 
his covenant faithfulness praised. Oh, I think if we understood what we have heard to return to the Psalms first verse, we understand it's hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And again, how you are to sing when you remember the ultimate demonstration of these things, not in God sending Moses for us, but in sending his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, come to be our mighty deliverer. When we think on Jesus, we are to say he remembered for us his covenant. That is what Jesus Christ is, a remembrance of God's covenant. Did you not see it in your own eyes last Lord's Day? This cup is the New Testament in my blood, the new covenant in my blood. Have we forgotten so soon? Have you forgotten so soon after last week? Have you forgotten so soon after last week like our fathers? Do not forget, child of God. This do what? In remembrance of me. Remember me, your God, your Savior. Do not forget me as your fathers. Remember Jesus and then ask the question of verse 2. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praises? We cannot recite all the mighty acts of the Lord. Who could even begin to utter them all? Here we are. You're probably thinking, some of you, we have spent almost an hour now in this text. And it's too much for me. Well, the child of God says there is so much mercy in this one psalm. And there is this big Bible. And then there is a history of my life and the history of the world. And there are the things that are unsaid by God and unseen. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? That is why we will praise him for eternity. And do you think it will bore you? No, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of his praise. We could spend the rest of the day just in this psalm finding praise here. And with all the scripture and all your history, you will delight to praise the Lord for all eternity. Verse 3 is another matter of praise. Blessed are they that keep judgment and he that doeth righteousness at all times. That verse would damn us if that was our hope. For there is none that are righteous And the psalm proves it, right? We have sinned with our fathers. And here's this litany. David doesn't say, David doesn't say, well, I am blessed because I have done righteousness at all times. The man who spends Psalm 51. We bless the Lord because the Lord knows this, that the only one who is blessed is the one who does righteousness all the time. And he comes in the person of Jesus Christ to fulfill it because he remembered his covenant that we might be blessed. Our hope is always set. Our gaze is always on the mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ, and not ourselves. And that's why in the next verse, David cries in verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people, and the grace that thou bearest unto thy people. Oh, and listen to this, visit me with thy salvation. How is that verse fulfilled, child of God? In Luke 1, in in the birth narrative of Jesus, Zacharias blesses God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. David's son, David's Lord, Jesus Christ, fulfilling the longing of David's heart in verse 4. David asked for salvation for his people in verse 5, that I may see the good of thy chosen or elect, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. 
And you think of Jesus again. When Simeon, when Simeon holds Christ, he sees what David longed for. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. What? Earlier we saw that they had exchanged the glory, uh, their glory for the golden calf. And here is the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ. A light to lighten the Gentiles in the glory of thy people Israel. Our psalm ends with a call for God to remember his covenant once again. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. I suppose this is a psalm for our time, is it not? His argument is when, when he does it, right? God, I, I trust you will remember your covenant and you will do this thing. Do it so that we would give thanks to your name and triumph in your praise. Do it for us sinners so that when it happens, we can sing, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake, because we recognize salvation is of the Lord and not of us. Will you pick up this psalm then when you are afflicted by sin? Will you cry to him? Would you plead his covenant faithfulness, not your own? And when the church is afflicted, do the same thing. His faithfulness is sealed in blood in a covenant. That is your hope and mine too. Well, it's final verse. We are called to bless the Lord and praise him for all this mercy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. Let us add our hearty amen to that as well and our hallelujah too. Amen. Let's rise for prayer and bless our covenant-keeping God. O Lord, our God, we thank you that the gospel, when it speaks of our faithfulness, all it says is you are unfaithful, and yet Christ is faithful a faithful Savior. We thank you for that because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we confess we are sinners, God, and reliant on the mercy of God. We thank you that if we have faith in the Lord Jesus, we are in this gracious covenant. And our hope is in that today, Father. But for your glory, Father, would you cause us not to be great sinners who walk in, uh, in waywardness, We're often returning to our vomit. We are thankful, O God, that you do save us in spite of ourselves. But we seek to be obedient to you. Give us the grace to do it. And if any here have never heard this gospel before, true religion out of the Bible that says it is not by works of righteousness that we are done, that we have done, but solely on the mercy of God that we are saved, received by faith in Christ alone. Would you open their hearts this day by the Spirit of the Lord and give them faith to believe? O Lord, for those of us who do believe, we say again, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Help us turn again to the great God of heaven, who will be very merciful to us if we cry out to him. We bless you and praise you, Father. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people say,